It's March 1st, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. I am your host, Ivarian Exporello, and welcome to Episode 2 of The Candid Frame. Well, after a steep learning curve and um, a lot of mistakes, I finally got Episode 1 up and online, which I was very excited about. And I'm even more excited that I'm still around for Episode 2. And I'm glad you are as well. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm hoping to provide you in the future a host of interviews with some really exciting and interesting photographers. And uh, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, drop me a line at thecandidframe at gmail.com or visit us at the website at www.thecandidframe.com for links not only on the photographers that we're interviewing, but uh, some other information I'll periodically post on some interesting things in photography. One thing I'd like to ask for is that if there are any experienced podcasters out there that are noticing things in terms of the audio quality that you think I can stand to improve on, please drop me a line. Um, There's so much to learn here, and I'm sort of learning it piecemeal. But if you hear something and you think there's a way for me to improve it, please drop me a line. I welcome any suggestion and comments that you can help uh, that will help me improve the quality of the podcast. And also, if you have some photographers out there who you're really interested in hearing from, um, send me an email, and uh, if possible, I'll arrange to to interview them and have them on the show. Now, the photographer I'm interviewing now is Mark Edward Harris, who I've known for the last several years. And Mark, Mark's work is very interesting. He's known primarily as a travel photographer, but as soon as you look at his images, you see why he's very different from what you would expect from a travel photographer, not the least of which is the fact that he shoots in black and white. Uh, His work is unlike the typical travel photography you'd see in the magazines which are awash in these brilliant saturated colors. He shoots black and white film. Uh, It does work with some digital and increasingly will be doing some in the future, but as soon as you see his images, they are atypical of what you typically expect from travel photography. It's more of a documentary photojournalistic style, sometimes even street photography. Um, He's been traveled all over the world. Uh, His particularly favorite area is Asia, Southeast Asia and the Pacific, as you see in some of the books that he's published, um, which includes The Way of the Japanese Bath, which is just a beautiful bound book. And he's also done another book, called The Faces of the 20th Century Master Photographers and Their Work, which, though it's out of print, is a worthwhile buy if you can find it uh, in the uh, used, in used bookstores. Uh, it's a collection of images and uh, articles he had written of famous photographers like Gordon Parks, Annie Leibovitz, and uh, Alfred Eisenstadt. We're going to talk with Mark about his career and particularly about some of the work that he's done in Southeast Asia and his choice to shoot in black and white and what this has meant for his career. So listen in and in a moment, our interview with Mark Edward. I'm here with Mark Edward Harris and Mark, welcome to The Candid Frame. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
Um, really appreciate you taking the time to discuss your work with us. And um, I guess I want to start off with how you began uh, in photography. I know that both of your parents had careers, um, media careers. That's right. And I'm wondering how that may have influenced your introduction to photography and media overall. Well, I was definitely, uh, with my folks, exposed to the world of photography and, and actually travel, which which was really the catalyst for me doing photography and documenting our trips even as a, as a kid. My dad always had an 8mm uh, uh, film camera around, and he shot uh, publicity stills for KCBS radio. I mean, he was director of publicity, but he was shooting uh, PR, and so we always had cameras around and definitely exposure to um, to the media and uh my first jobs, actually, my, my first real paying gig was the Merv Griffin show, doing the stills for that. So, you know, basically living in L.A., it wasn't a big, you know, jump to do that. But um started doing that, and that really, in a sense, taught me to look for, to say the desi- decisive moments may be too dramatic, but I, when shooting the show... uh with the celebrities, it was a moment when everybody had the the right look, and and um, I was very uh, acutely aware of looking for that instant where everybody, uh, when, when expressions were at the right time. I couldn't just be a machine gunner and shoot, you know, blasting through film. I mean, when you have a, a camera and a blimp, you know, you you have to. Uh, be careful with the shots because you have to, you know, open it up and reload it. And all that, and you know, for those who don't know what a blimp is, it's a big, um, it's a silencer for for camera bodies, and, and we were shooting film back in those days, and um, so I would really try to look for the right moment, and and obviously for my um, photography I do on on the street these days, it's the same thing. I, I don't really just blast through film, just hoping to get one shot, but sort of look for a moment. After the Merv Griffin show ended, you took a like a four month trip right. to Asia, and I was wondering how long had that been sort of gestating in your mind that you wanted to make the leap from, you know, doing photography of you know celebrities and you know and that type of work into, you know, traveling the world and using your camera and to make a living. Well, I think I think the doing the Merv Griffin show and stills for movies and other things was really just. Uh, you know, a way to make money, and I, I definitely enjoyed it, but I always loved more the National Geographic approach to photography. And so when the show ended in 86, uh, there was a good opportunity before really jumping into something else to get out on the road. And so, yeah, I did this four-month trip island. We did a Circle Pacific, and we, we were able to buy through student travel, because you know, I think I was under 26 there, this great round the, the Pacific trip and island hop and then end up eventually in Australia and then Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, I think with the stop in the Philippines along the way, and Hong Kong. And and that really gave me an opportunity to build a portfolio of travel type images. But the thing is I was more and more drawn to black and white at that time. So I started moving away from the, the National Geographic approach in terms of what the work looked like to more... I guess you could say more of a, a fine art sort of look, you know, in terms of the, the black and white images. And now it's it's funny because of digital and because of color negative film, I've found that I can, especially with color negative film, that I can, can I can shoot the same style I shoot in black and white, and if I want to convert something, fine. Or I can work with the image 
in a digital dark room, let's say I'm shooting color negative film, scan it, and can convert it and really not lose anything at all. Whereas, you know, years before, like on, on that trip, to, to go from color to black and white really did lose something. Uh, you know, in terms of a look, you had to shoot black and white if you wanted a really great black and white look. When you when you got back, um, you started doing more commercial work. You opened a studio up in mm -hmm. downtown Los Angeles. But at some point, you started um, investing most of your efforts in in travel. And I'm wondering um, about that transition because for a lot of photographers, once they once they get into the commercial work, they start doing it and get committed to it mm -hmm. because that's the way to pay the bills. That's right. And though they may have aspirations of doing other kind of work, they get locked in. So I'm wondering how you managed to not do that and be able to make travel and documentary work, you know, the, the, a major part of your of, of what you do. Maybe not being too successful at it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, you know, it's funny. I, I did have success with it in terms of, I mean, early on, I think the first or second uh, advertising gig I ever shot for Mexican Airlines, we won a Clio Award. And actually, I won a couple of awards early on. But but my heart wasn't there, though definitely the, um, I mean, a great thing about commercial work like that is it, it pays really well. And that's that started paying for these trips that I really wanted to do. Um, I still... Now, in fact, I'm, I would say now I'm getting more into that type of commercial work again, uh, but definitely never at the um, uh, to to the point where I'm going to give up uh, the reportage work that I really love. I mean, my my schooling is you know, I have a you know master's in in history, which actually is a special major combining ph uh, photography and history from Cal State LA. Um, I never want to get away from that. I really would feel, if I were strictly doing advertising and not the other work, I would really feel a void for sure. Uh, so it's a balancing act where, where I have to pay the bills. I do enjoy uh, advertising. I mean, if I were in the studio just shooting uh, tabletop stuff, that would be tough for me. That would, But, but to, when, when you go out and do a advertising gig with, with people, there's a nice energy there and uh, you know, it's problem solving too. I mean, the newest thing that I did um, with the interior designer Kelly Wurstler, that was really fantastic. Exposed me to a whole other area in terms of uh, fashion and design, and and, and uh, I get a kick out of that. I think part of it is I love all sorts of photography. So, actually, with, with Kelly a while ago, I did I did a commission that was very much like a Bauhaus approach to shooting some of the hotel work that she did, the interior designs. And I had seen a show in Korea when I was over doing a story in the DMZ, uh, went to a Bauhaus exhibit that really inspired me to to have that sort of approach to shooting interior designs, a little more abstract. And, and, and um, so it all plays in, uh, it plays upon itself. And, and um, you know, I'm very fortunate, and also the continuing to do interviews for various magazines with other photographers. I learn a lot from them and it inspires me. Um, so it's just a balancing act between commercial and uh, editorial. Um, you worked with Kerry Morris, you know, at, yeah. at Playboy, and I think yeah. it's sort of an interesting um, 
part of your career, considering what, what the body of your work is. And people go, well, you work for Playboy, but he does this sort of documentary work. How does that fit in? So I'm, I'm kind of yeah. wondering, what did you learn from your years at Playboy yeah. working with Carrie um, that influenced uh, your work? I was incredibly lucky and were fortunate. I, I'm not a big fan of the word luck because that just seems to be pure chance, but fortunate means, you know, sort of chance mixed in with, with hard work and making things happen. Uh, Kerry uh, was a really good photographer at, at, uh, at Playboy, a staff, one of the last staff photographers there. But he gave me the opportunity, and one thing that I was really missing from my time at Cal State LA and Cal State Northridge was really to know lighting, studio lighting. Um, th- those schools didn't have big... You know, uh, studio lighting sort of setups, and so all of a sudden you get to Playboy. Because I went around and I uh, put my name in at different places and met with different photographers to assist. I thought that was the best way to really get to know. Uh, you know, and this is actually funny enough after the Merv Griffin show, but I didn't do any of that type of studio lighting at the time. And um, and he really taught me how to. We would shoot on location all the time, so there we, you know, we'd run out with Dyna lights and all this, and I'd have to set up every day a different place. And so regardless of the subject matter. We were shooting the, the um, ability to light fairly quickly in a sophisticated way um, was incredible. And Carrie was a, uh, besides you know, really great photographer, was a great teacher, and took the time and had the patience to uh, to work with me uh, to develop as a good assistant and, and to learn how to light. So, you know, even if when I do the reportage sort of thing. Um, I'm not out there running around with dynalites and all. I'm still maybe more acutely aware of, of lighting because of that experience. And then when I do the advertising gigs, or I do, like with Kelly, the um, interior design book, where it's very lighting, you know, heavy in terms of when we're doing the couture shots with her. Um, it, it, those times with, with Playboy, the assisting days, really pay off big time. Looking at your work, I see... Um Influences like Henri Henri uh, Gautier Besson, yeah. and I oftentimes see your work much different than I do most travel work because I see more of a street photography influence in it, which I, which I particularly like. And I'm wondering what influences uh, beyond uh, Besson have influenced yeah. your your work. Well, for sure, my guru, I would say, is uh, W. Gene Smith. I mean, his approach to to life and photography. Uh, definitely has had a major influence. His, his, uh, series in Minamata, you know, on the mercury poisoning and, and what he did there was incredible. In fact, when I was doing my uh, Japanese hot spring book, my wife and I made a pilgrimage over to, well, I guess it was my pilgrimage and she came along, uh, to, to Minamata to the actual village or little city that, that he, um, he did that series. And, and it was just after they had a 25 year embargo on a fish there because mm-hmm. of the mercury poisoning. And uh, it's funny, it's the one time Mika didn't want to go out for sushi that night. I remember that. <laughs> it's actually true. I think we had uh, karage, which is sort of a fried chicken sort of thing. And so, But she, uh, uh, they have a great museum there now, actually dedicated. If anybody gets to Japan and they want to go down to Kyushu and then to the, to the, the town of Minamata, they can go to this uh, research center that has a lot of work and the history of this mercury poisoning. And, uh, and it was W.G. Smith who put that... Uh, issue on the world map. And that's the great thing about photographers like him. I mean, he really could 
make things so personal with his camera that um, uh, really would transcend cultures or, or, or whatever. People could relate to that, you know, the, 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 the humanist. Well, actually, you know, the, the humanistic photography. I mean, that's where he was coming from. And... Um, he exemplified that. Other photographers, I mean, I'm influenced by by so many. I think, you know, Helmut Newton's approach to doing original work. Um, the photographers I did for Faces of the 20th Century, I mean, all inspired me. I had, like, Carl Maidens, Alfred Eisenstadt, Gordon Parks. I mean, even, like, I'd tell you somebody really inspired me, who people don't know here so much, but Jean-Luc Cieff is a great photographer, uh, he passed away, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. But um, he would never be cubbyholed into any particular type of photographer. He just saw, saw himself as a as a photographer. And, um, you know, one day it might be fashion, next day nudes, next day, uh, you know, commercial advertising gig. Um, could, be, could be anything. But Jean-Luc Cieff really... Um, and he had, he had ran into some issues with that because he was a, a member for a short time with Magnum, and you know some of the people there didn't quite get it. You know what's a um, what's a Magnum photographer doing running around shooting some fashion? And he just wouldn't be cubbyholed, and uh, his work's incredible. You put a, a wonderful book together, Faces of the Twentieth Century, uh, photographers and their work, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how that came about because you had the opportunity to showcase and photograph some of the world's best photographers and uh, yeah tell me about that well that actually came up because I was doing um, a series of interviews I was approached by at the time it was darkroom photography and then it became Cameron darkroom Um, the editor there said hey why don't you go out and uh, interview photographers we want to have uh, interviews with photographers from a photographer's standpoint and so I said, that would be great. And so they let me basically pick who I wanted to interview. And so during those years, um, as, as a freelancer, for, for as a contributing editor for them, um, I had the opportunity to just meet so many uh, incredible photographers, including the ones we, we just talked about. Um, and also people, see Manuel Alvarez Bravo. Um, I mean, the, the list goes on and... and um, and it, it continues actually for, for magazines now for outdoor photographer, PC photo, American photo, black and white magazine. I still get a, a, a big kick out of that. And I think because, you know, just like what you're doing, I mean, from another photographer's point of view, you get uh, an insight and an understanding that maybe somebody who's not a photographer isn't able to connect with. Um, but what happened is I started compiling all these interviews and people started saying, hey, this would make a great book. So basically, I put a binder together of all the interviews, the tear sheets, and I went to a, a, a book convention, and Abbeville Press picked it up and said, hey, let's do this. So it ended up in English, German, and French in three uh, different editions, and it sold out. So that was a, a pretty neat thing. How was it photographing photographers? Because I know when I first met Gordon Parks, I didn't take his picture. I was far too nervous probably <laughs> to even consider holding a camera steady. Yeah. But considering that these people are behind the camera yeah. so much of the time, how was it photographing uh, them? And did you have a particular interesting experience photographing any one of them? Yeah, everybody really was was pretty great and just sort of let me do my thing. I didn't do a big, big 
set up. It pretty much was in an environment we did the uh, the interview with. I mean, I think certain people. I think it was more. I was more nervous. Uh, once or twice, I would say, sitting down face to face, let's say with Annie Leibovitz or something. I mean, sort of had to pinch myself, like, wow, I'm really here with with uh, Annie or Helmet or Izzy or, or or any of them. Um, I mean, that's like, what a dream come true. But you know, the more I did it, the more I used to uh, doing it, the more. Um, it easily flowed, so I really enjoyed the whole experience. In terms of photographing, uh, it was never, um, it was really a, a two-way uh, street where, where people say, hey, how about try this, or, or I said, how about this, and it was usually just sort of a natural light, sort of fairly clean, simple uh, environmental portrait. So that that part of it wasn't tough. I would say at, at times just the, 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 uh, just being overwhelmed that I'm in the presence of you know these amazing photographers. That was the in- incredible part. That was, you know, that was just in, in shock kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think one of the first uh, bodies of work that I saw of yours was the one you did in the way of uh, the bathhouse mm-hmm. that you did in, in Japan. Right. Um, tell me how that came about, and also I'd like to hear about the challenges of shooting under those kind of situations and especially in terms of working basically in a steam room Mm -hmm. with uh with a camera and a lens right well yeah from a technical standpoint i mean there were a couple of obstacles to really deal with one is is you're you're uh in a situation where there's nude people uh which when you have a camera and you don't know them is always a uh an iffy uh if iffy thing um to the cultural thing it's it's here some um you know, Western guy coming in and to the bathhouse and, and, and with a camera, and that's a little odd. Three is is the um, the technical aspect of um, I don't know if I had the order right or not, but but the technical aspect of really dealing with with a, a lot of humidity and things that you know condensation on a lens, all that sort of thing. So so so, but fortunately, from my background, each one of those wasn't too tough. Uh, my wife is. Japanese and I speak Japanese fairly well, so that helped a lot. Uh, some of the baths are, are called uh, konyoku, which means uh, mixed bathing. And so, if my wife uh, was there, then that was really no big deal. Also, I really love the, the the Japanese hot spring personally, and so I would partake of it as well. And so, the only thing that that uh, I mean, I would have you know the towel that everybody else had that you hold in front of you when you walk in, and then I would just have like an FM two because I, I wanted just to use a mechanical camera to not deal with the problems of um, uh, the electronics going haywire, which obviously can uh, happen very easily. Um, in the best uh, cameras, I mean, you put them into that situation, especially the indoor uh, hot springs, and you're going to have real issues. I did use an underwater bag on occasion to put the camera in, uh, even if we were not shooting uh, outside. I, I'm sorry, underwater. It was very helpful, and so it was. This I think it was called an aquamarine bag. I put the camera in in, in very humid situations. Um, another thing that I did. And I learned this from a Japanese cinema photographer, or cinema cinema photographer. That doesn't sound right. Cinematographer. Cinema photographer. Thank you. Is uh, is to use a hair dryer and heat up the the lens, 
And that would keep it from getting condensation. Because before I put on some seed drops, what they call seed drops, you know, which um, divers use on their masks. Mm -hmm. And I would put that on on an extra filter I would keep around and then just put it on. So there were a number of techniques I would use. Because from a technical uh, aspect, that was the toughest thing, to keep the lenses from fogging up on uh, indoor or enclosed areas uh, was really an issue. But... um, in terms of, okay, so Konyoku were the mixed bathing, and then the ones where I was just on the men's side, I'd first walk in, and, um, you know, the other people there would be very sort of quiet at first a little bit, because that's the way it is when anybody comes in, because you don't know them, whatever. And then um, I would say that I'm doing uh, some uh, photos, and do they mind if I'm shooting? But I would say that in Japanese. And so, and so it's funny, I mean, a few times, I mean, we... They talk about bathing buddies. People become best friends in the, in, the, in the hot tubs there. And whereas here, if you drink alcohol uh, in, a, in a hot tub, they kick you out. If you don't drink there, they'll kick you out. <laughs> and and uh, and so I would always like you know would share some sake or whatever. This wasn't always the case, but but uh, in the late afternoon, this was definitely happened on more than one occasion. And, and Mika would have to come and try to drag me out because I was hanging out with these guys and we're talking and drinking and, and having this nice, you know, interaction. And, and I'd be in there for an hour when I said, you know, I'd meet her in 20 minutes. Um, so I think the the biggest thing was having learned to speak Japanese at a, at a somewhat conversational level was, was the key into that world. And so now I'm you know, doing some work in, in Korea and I'm learning Korean. Now, my level of Korean is, is nothing compared to my Japanese, but I think that the, the words uh, that I am learning uh, will definitely open some doors. Because you're doing a lot of traveling mm-hmm. in, in Asia and Southeast, Southeast Asia and the yeah. Pacific, and I'm wondering, in terms of access, you know, because it's it's one thing to be photographing people in the streets, mm-hmm. but in a lot of other photographs, you're getting into more personal environments, and I'm wondering how you create that access for yourself, especially if you're on assignment when you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. That's, well, I think, you know, one of the things, and this comes from most of the photographers that I photographed and uh, interviewed as well, like, uh, you know, Gordon Parks uh, was on the island of Stromboli with um, uh, Rossellini, and um, why am I forgetting uh, I forget the end. Yeah, the yeah, director, yeah. yeah. The director. Yeah, the director, right? Um, but um, yeah, Ingrid Bergman and Rossellini, whatever, whatever his first name is. I'm sure the audience knows it, or some people do. But anyway, he um, he, he became uh, very friendly with them, and I think that um, that so much of the access I have is because I, I generally like people, and, and I'm always interested in, in different cultures and all this sort of thing. And so I think that 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 transcends language and people can get a feeling for that that's why um you know when, when when you travel you know it is important to sit down with people and have a meal and talk and even if if, if it's a short amount of time um you know for that more personal work i mean i think if you hide across the street with a you know 80 to 200 zoom or something um you're not going to get that sort of approach i mean nobody i think really appreciates being photographed you know, in that voyeuristic sort of way. I think if you walk around with a wider lens and get up close and personal and have some sort of interaction, um, even if it's very brief, I think that that, that shows and translates 
you know, onto film or onto the digital card. I, I think um, you look at most of the the great reportage and documentary sort of photographers, their approach is sort of that up and close and personal. Even if, like Cartier-Bresson said, you know, the hidden camera or this or that. I mean, you can tell by his photography he's right there mm -hmm. as well. He's not, you know, a long distance away trying to sneak a shot. Most, most of your work is in black and white, but mm -hmm. you do a lot of, you know, travel work for, for magazines. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious as how that works out with you having largely a reputation as a black and white photographer and, you know, getting by editors are going, well, this is wonderful work. It's black and white, but we only uh, publish color. Yeah. That's actually been a, a big issue in my career. And I, it's, I, it's changing, and I'm purposely making a change because for commercial purposes, that, ha that happens all the time. People say, wow, I like his work. Um, but it's black and white, and people don't think, oh, well, okay, if he shoots black and white, you know, he can definitely shoot color. That is never a thought. It, it's, they have to see the color in order to, to, to feel comfortable with that. And um, I think over, in recent years I have been building up more of a portfolio of color. But I, I, that's partially come from a reality that that's what I need to do to get some of the because what I'll do just like something I shot uh, last year for Travel Magazine in India I shot the color stuff that I needed to shoot and actually same thing for something I shot last year as well in South America I shot the color shots that I needed to shoot and and which got me to that place in the first place and then I would shoot some of my personal work in black and white um, it's a little tougher but I also know the sort of work that uh, magazines want isn't sort of the heavy reportage uh, the travel magazines want don't want this heavy reportage stuff. So I know that, that okay, this is a, something I could shoot in black and white and I won't lose out. But also, I'm shooting more color negative film. And uh, as I said, that is really allowing me the opportunity to not have to go back and forth between black and white and color because I can just desaturate uh, the, uh, after take, taking the um, color film, I can have it scanned and then just desaturate it, and it, it just really ends up with beautiful uh, black and white images, uh, you know, with that process now, which wasn't available to us that long ago at the high enough level. I think, remember the paper panel lore? Mm -hmm. Was uh, what, what, what we had to do in the old days, you know, which wasn't really that long ago. But that never really was, never looked really good. And so it's a different ballgame these days. And so I think because of digital, funny enough, it's, it's what's helped me... Um, keep the black and white for, for certain images and uh, the flexibility. I mean, the color, when it was transparency film, it was just never uh, a great way for me to, to shoot the style that I wanted to shoot. It's only when color negatives uh, started getting more um, accepted by photo editors. That's really the big thing, too. And then now the process of, of, of scanning and, and being able to, to deliver images you know, on discs or, or, or uploaded or whatever. So, so that's really, uh, I'm thrilled by that. And plus now the highest end digital cameras do yield such amazing photographs. Um, so there are assignments now. I'm, I'm sort of, I go back and forth depending on what it is. Yeah. Well, one of the pieces of work that I saw while I was uh, viewing your website was the, uh, and I know I'm going to say this incorrectly, the Domosalari Decoratas. Yeah, that's uh, it. In fact, you know what is funny? I need to um, change that. Uh, on my website, it's it. I was I was corrected by a Latin scholar when we actually went to press. For, this is a Harper Collins, Judith Regan Harper Collins book on the interior designer Kelly Wurstler. So the supposedly the correct uh, Latin is now Domus Salium Decoratus. 
but basically just home design, but sort of looking at the roots of it with this interior designer, uh, Kelly Wurstler, who's done the Viceroy Hotels, um, the Avalon in L.A., just a lot of great work, and she and I started working together. And uh, we talked about uh, the approach, how should we do it? And she as well started thinking, well, should we do you know black and white, thinking of me more like that? And I said, well, I, I really do think this is, you know, it's about your, it's about her newest home, which she did this incredible job with her design. Then we shot her in these incredible couture gowns. And it, it really wasn't going to gain anything from black and white. In fact, it, it would lose something. But I wanted to go for the highest uh, possible quality. And so I... I uh, worked with Digital Fusion and their digital package, and so we had the H1 with a digital back, and uh, you know a technician comes out, and we were able to really shoot these great couture things. And then for the, the details that I shot, I used uh, color neg film, which was very easy, and then did sort of the same approach, you know, that I did with with her in earlier times, with sort of more of the Bauhaus sort of look at uh, abstract designs uh, in her interior designs, but the couture stuff. Uh, with the H1 just was incredible how much we could zoom in and, and, and uh, every every ounce of that image uh, had detail because of that, that setup. I mean, a contrast, the way it held contrast and, and color, and also the, the, the incredibly uh, useful uh, opportunity to see on a large screen the instant after we shoot it to look at the image and so the the stylist would gather around the makeup artist you know would look at the images and really have a chance to uh, you know far better than you know just looking at a Polaroid we could really see what we had there and make adjustments as necessary yeah now listeners will be able to see a selection of those images and a lot of other images mm -hmm. that span your career when they visit uh, the site I'll have a link uh, for it up up there Great. Um, I think that's it. Thanks a whole lot, Mark. I really Thanks. appreciate you, you taking so the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the interesting things about these interviews is that I'm trying to keep them down to a half an hour, but I could talk to these photographers for hours. But since I'm no big fan of these hour-long podcasts, um, I'm having to keep them short. But believe me, I could talk to them for a very long time. And... Um, Unfortunately, I can't squeeze all of that into a half-hour podcast. So, But you have the opportunity to check out these photographers' work and find out more about them yourself. Uh, again, visit us at the website at thecandidframe.com where I'll have links uh, to the photographers' websites and some uh, other information on them. And uh, again, thank you for visiting, listening to the show. Please subscribe and tell your friends. And until next time, this is Ivarian X. Perella. And this is The Candid Frame.